Heavenly Father, once again, we come to your word. Um, no matter how much we prepare, we come unprepared for what your, your spirit may do and say. Lord, such a, such a small letter with so much packed into it. And as we listen to the voice of Judah, as we, as we hear of the burdens that existed in the church when he was writing, Lord, we think of the church in our day and how you inspired this work, not just for the moment that it was in, um, but for all the moments that, to come. And Lord, as we, as we look at a difficult topic um, that takes us, um, Lord, you know, takes us into kind of some dark territory, we ask for clear sight, um, uh, we pray for focus and connection that we might um, engage this text honestly and truthfully, and that we might hear from your Spirit. <clears throat> we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's take a look at the book of Jude. Um, and, and Ray's right, I am a nice guy. I really should have just told you to read it every day. Um, but uh, it is only 25 verses. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's a, not a simple book. I mentioned last week that Jude probably has the most refined Greek um, of the New Testament. Um, it's a very carefully composed book, but it also engages a very wide variety of things that existed in Judaism at the day. And so it's, it's very difficult sometimes if you come from outside of the context of somebody that's very versed in these, these narratives, you sit there and you go, I have no idea what they're talking about. There are words on the page and the guy is reading them, but I don't know what they mean. Um, and so I want to give you a very brief summary of the worldview that Jude is speaking into, and then uh, we can kind of make connections along the way. So before we get to the text, just very quickly, this uh, Jude is written from within the backdrop of what's called Second Temple Judaism. The temple had been rebuilt um, in Jerusalem uh, in the in the uh, the sixth century B.C. And during that time period, over the subsequent about 600 years or so, the, the Jews were dominated by a number of groups of people, the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then a bunch of Greek successor states, and then finally the Romans. And so they developed this idea, this, they really, not developed as much as they really emphasized this idea that um, something had to change. There had to be the anointed one, all right, or in, in, we get the word Messiah or the Greek word Christ. Um, this anointed one would have to come and overthrow the world power, um, whoever that was. It didn't really matter who the world power was. People talk about the Romans, but when it was the Greeks, they wanted the Greeks overthrown. When it was the successor states, they wanted them overthrown. When it was the Romans, they wanted them overthrown. It didn't really matter. They just wanted whoever was in charge, they wanted them overthrown. Um, and, uh, and they wanted, they believed that God was going to make a special, unique state for them. They were going to be restored. Now, they weren't wrong. The, the Hebrew Scriptures does say that eventually the kingdom of Israel under David, under the Davidic line, will be restored. But when Jesus came, who was a descendant of David, um, and was declared to be by the resurrection of the of the from the dead to be the son of God. When Jesus came, he kind of changed the game. The expectation that everybody had would be that this Messiah would be a military leader, a political leader, and instead Jesus comes and dies as a criminal and then is raised from the dead. 
And the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter are really the first two that really get a, a handle on what that means. They kind of get their grasp on, this is different. This is not the same old, same old. This is something new. Because there are 600 years of accumulated information. Now, we all know how this works, right? The first time something do, somebody does something innovative, everybody's like, oh my gosh, innovation. Whoa, hold up, back up. Then the second generation is, this is, the way, this is cool, this is what we're doing. And then the third generation says, don't change it, this is perfect. By the time you get to the fourth generation, they're like, why are we doing it this way again? And then you go through the whole cycle again. This is, this is what happens. It happens in human experience. Well, imagine 600 years of accumulated information, of accumulated expectation, of accumulated beliefs. It's hard to just weed that out of your head. Even if Jesus is the Messiah, it's still going to creep back in. And James, the Apostle James, uh, he, when he wrote his epistle, which we just finished studying, it was very early on in the church, and they were dealing with this issue then. By the time we get to his brother Jude, writing toward the end of the first century, it has become epidemic. And, and what the point that Ray made is very important. It's not just about false teachers. Sometimes it's about false teaching. And good people, earnest people, wanting to do what's right, can fall into the trap of false teaching, and that can influence and change the church. Now, in Jude's case, what, however the dynamic worked, there were now false teachers who were presenting an alternate gospel within the church. They weren't saying, come and join our church. You know, we've got, you know, come and join us, we've got cookies. Um, they, they, were, they were instead really influencing from within. So these appear to be, and I know this sound weird, but this appear to be homegrown apostates. People from within the church who seem to be good, seem to be doing everything, but Jude has seen the, the result of what their direction was. And, and so he's, he's really dealing with this and and so we're going to get into uh, we're going to get into this, and we're going to start uh, we're going to start with verse three because it really sets the pref the the scenario up. We're going to read all the way uh, to verse thirteen. So Jude chapter Jude chapter one because there's only one chapter. Jude verse three, beloved. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write. Uh, appealing to you to condemn for the faith that was once delivered for all the saints, delivered for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Lord and Master, our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once knew all fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the day, a great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities were likewise, uh, likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, um, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And before we get any further, 
I want you to see where James's or Jude's focus is. Jude's focus is on Jesus as everything that Jesus is. When he describes Jesus, right, the the Lord or Lord Jesus, and there and and there's actually two. Uh, ways that this has been kind of transmitted, the manuscripts from the first, second, third century, um, either as Lord or Lord Jesus, but either way, it's talking about Jesus. The Lord Jesus, the one who saved the people out of Egypt, right? The, the Savior, the one who split the Red Sea, all of those things. That Jesus, it's the same Jesus who destroyed those who did not believe afterwards. Jude is going, let's not take one the part of Jesus we like and not talk about the part of Jesus that we don't like. I've always found that false teachers will tend to focus on whatever part of the Bible paints them in the best color. You know, only let's only talk about this part. Um, and and uh, and then he says, just remember the same Jesus, the same Jesus who led the people of Israel in the Exodus. He also destroyed those who didn't believe. And by the way, he didn't do it subtly. He like opened chasms in the ground and dropped them. He had Moses have some of them. He melted an idol down and had them drink it. Stuff like that. All right, Jesus, this is, this is another side, right? And, he says, and then he says the angels who abandoned their first estate, he says those angels in verse 6, those angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he's kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. Now whole books have been written about what on earth he's talking about. Oh, well, he's quoting this ancient text, or he's talking about this, or he's da-da-da-da-da. And if you're looking for me to give you an answer to that controversy, I'm not going to. I don't know what Jude is talking about. He's not talking specifically about anything in Scripture. So he has to be drawing an illustration from the, the views that people had. Now, now, if I were asked an opinion, I can't say concretely, but if I was asked an opinion, I would say that Jude is using whatever scriptures these false teachers were using, he's turning them on them. So he's taking whatever they were using as authoritative stories. So maybe they had an authoritative story about angels and rebelling against God and all this stuff. And people want to find all these ancient documents. They're like, well, it's, it's got to be this, and it's got to be that, and it's got to be this one. And, and Whenever you ask somebody, well, why does it have to be that? It's like, because we only have 40 other documents, so it's got to be one of those, right? Um, and, and we really don't know what exactly Jude is talking about. But what he is making the point about <coughs> is that the same Jesus who spared slaves and brought them, out of the, brought them out of Egypt in the Exodus, that same Jesus punished the unbelievers and he punishes angels. So I want you to get the context of who he's talking about. This is not just Savior. This is Lord and Master. Now elsewhere he uses that phrase. But in the handout there, the same Lord who parted the Red Sea also destroyed the armies of Egypt with the same Red Sea. The same Lord who brought food and water in the wilderness also crushed rebellions. The same Jesus who is patient with our ignorance does not tolerate our willful rebellion. Honestly, and this is not specifically talking at Bedford Road, I'm not addressing any particular rebellion or anything like that, please don't take it that way. Christians could stand to hear that message a little more often. 
that the Jesus who forgives our sins, the Jesus who, the Bible says, winks at our ignorance, he just says, well, they just didn't know any better, is the same Jesus who punishes willful rebellion. All right? The, think about, I mean, just you, you have to get the whole image. The Jesus who is Savior is also the Jesus who is judge. And I think we would be well served to remember that Jesus is not a one-dimensional genie who gives us salvation when we ask him for it, answers our prayers when we need them. He is also a master and a Lord, not just a, but the. So now that we know what we're talking about when we're talking about Jesus, we know how seriously Judah is taking these false teachers that he's encountered. Now, he has a very specific issue in mind, and we're going to get to that. But now we want to talk about the anatomy of these false teachers. And we want to deal with how Judah describes them. And, and in order to do that, we have to really get into all of these, uh, all of these texts. So let's start with verse 4. He describes them as those who pervert the grace of God into sensuality or licentiousness, which is a bigger word, but it's the idea of a free-for-all, just doing whatever makes you happy. And the word pervert, all right, we, we, we have such a, a very narrow definition of pervert um, as a noun as, to, as opposed to the verb pervert. Um, and I know the emphasis on the syllables is different, um, but, but this... Um, what, what, what perversion is, is it's taking something that is good and twisting it to evil purposes. That's what perversion is. When you, when you talk about somebody being a pervert, they're, they're taking something that God gave to mankind for our pleasure and our joy and our procreation. If you don't know what I'm talking about, ask your mom. Um, and twisting it into something else. They're taking it and saying, no, no, you're saying that this is the only way that this this could be expressed but it could also be this way and and we have to accept that it's this way they pervert the grace of god into sensuality and and i, I sat there and i looked at that and i said why those two terms why grace and sensuality why twisting god's grace into sensuality licentiousness you know uh libertineness, I guess, for lack of a, a bigger word that I could use. Well, think about what grace is. Grace is God giving all that he can give to us. Right? God giving forgiveness of sins. God giving his eternal love to those of us that don't deserve it. It's, it's God giving all of who he is for me. And what is sensuality? It is taking all of what others are for myself. See, God's grace is God in his infinite love, compassion, and, and mercy pouring out upon us what we don't deserve. Giving of himself for us. And sensuality, licentiousness, it is me taking everything from others for my own pleasure, for my own joy. If grace is defined by how God sees us in his compassion, sensuality is how we see each other for consumption. 
Now, we, we take that and we, you know, immediately we want to apply it to specific relationships, but that happens all the time in all kinds of relationships. People take you for what they can get from you, and then they leave you behind. And let's be honest, we do it too. There are relationships that we have that serve a purpose for us, and when they no longer serve that purpose, they just get pushed to the side. Now, there's nothing wrong with relationships having a lifespan. You know, they all do. Otherwise, we would have all had to marry our junior high girlfriends. All relationships have a lifespan. But when the, the foundation of the relationship is what I can get from that relationship, and when I can no longer get that, oh well. And I would actually contend to you, in human relationships, it is when we get to the end of that that we actually discover what it means to love somebody. When we are no longer getting what we want, but we are honoring the covenant of God, that's really where biblical love starts. So sensuality is consumption, right? Grace is compassion. Sensuality is, or grace is sacrifice. Sensuality is control. So the first description that he has for them is that they twist God giving everything that, I, that he is to me. They twist that into acquiring for themselves. Then secondly, as we keep going, he says, and they deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Well, why those two words? Why master and Lord? Aren't they the same thing? Now, well, the word master, by the way, is the Greek word despotis, the word that we get despot from. It gets a bad rap because of the way that we use that word. But, but the idea of being a master is being in a position of control. So if you deny the one who is supposed to be in a position of control over you so that you can be in control, that's going to take you down the road of false teaching. And then he talks about Lord. Well, we don't like to talk about what the word Lord means. But Lord means ownership. It means a hierarchical relationship. It means that Jesus is the boss of you. And no one likes to hear that. We like to talk about Jesus as being loving. We like to talk about Jesus as our buddy. We like to talk about Jesus as our forever friend. We like to talk about Jesus inviting Jesus into our hearts. Jesus is Lord. He owns you. Which makes His grace even more extraordinary. An owner is not required to be gracious to those he owns. We could be enslaved. Jesus has every right to completely and utterly dominate control and, and, and crush you. He owns you. But thankfully, he's not us. So he doesn't do to what he owns what we do to what we own. Rather, his ownership is complete and utter benevolence and grace and hesed and compassion and patience. Jesus does not need to be patient with you. 
And the better we understand that Jesus chooses to love us, the better we understand just how big that is. That Jesus chooses to forgive us. Jesus is not forced to be your loving Savior. He chose to be your loving Savior. And that should get you jazzed up. Because I wouldn't choose me. I don't know about you. So why do they need to deny Jesus' control and ownership? What's going on? The reality is, the deep, deep problem with all of this is that they want to be in God's place. They want to be the lords of the lives of those in the church. These false teachers, they might say that they're doing this all for Jesus. And here's the issue with false teaching. And Ray and I have talked about this, about you know the whole wolves among the sheep kind of a thing. False teachers sound pretty good. They look pretty good. They tend to get results. They tend to have power. They tend to be impressive. They, they, they tend to radiate magnetism. You just sit there and you're like, wow. Like, I, I mean, and this has nothing to do with the Bible, but a perfect example of that kind of a person is Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs was an unruly psychopath. And I don't, I don't, I don't mean to, I, he literally was. Like, he's the clinical definition of a psychopath. Relationally, couldn't handle things, was making billions of dollars a year, and lived in, uh, he slept on uh, a, basically a, a couch cushions in a multi-million dollar house because he could never decide what furniture to buy. Like, he had a lot of mental issues. He spent, like, months just eating carrots. Like, like he had some mental issues. And yet, when Steve Jobs got on the stage, and it, it's really highlighted now when you watch the guys that run Apple now, they try to do the same thing that Steve Jobs did. Steve Jobs would get up on the stage, and he was like, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. It's so beautiful. It's so amazing. Don't you want it? And everybody's sitting there going... Now, now when they do it, now the guys do it and everybody's going, I don't even understand why anyone would want that. You know, there's just a completely different world. But he had this charisma, this control, and, and this, you know, it's a whole other topic. But most of the time, people that, that are that level of human being, that run that kind of organization, there's a lot of mental things that make them the people that they are. I won't get into it, but you've got to be you got to be pretty cold to destroy your competition the way companies do, um, CEOs do, and stuff. That's why it always baffles my mind when we look to them for moral leadership. Um, but uh, you know, when somebody's entire purpose of life is to make enough money to send themselves to the moon, probably not the person you want to be listening to about how to give your charitable donations. Just saying, um, that's a total other sermon. Take. The, over that. All right, so, so they deny the master and their Lord because they want control. They want ownership. Now, he's going to bring up some biblical illustrations of this that one of them should resonate right away. But in verses 5 through 7, he, he breaks down, and we already talked about how um, the, the, he says, I want to remind you, you fully know that Jesus who saved the people out of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. The angels did not stay in their position of authority. And then in verse 7, he says, In Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, if you don't know the story, Sodom and Gomorrah, terrible, sinful cities, um, and, and Abraham's 
camped out kind of far away, and God comes and he says, look, I'm going to destroy that city. And Abraham's nephew Lot is in there, and there's a whole other story that goes on, and I'm not going to get into that. But there weren't even five righteous people in this city that the city could be spared. And so God destroys the, the city with, uh, with hellfire and brimstone and all kinds of interesting things, like, the, like Armageddon, you know, like the asteroids crashing in that movie. Not, not the biblical thing, the actual Bruce Willis movie, Armageddon. Uh, that kind of a cataclysm. Um, some of you are like, did he just refer to a Bruce Willis movie from the 90s? I did. Let's move on. All right. So Egypt um, is about, you know, he says, he uses the example of Egypt. He says, look, he says, God destroys those. And look at what he says. He says, those who refuse to believe. So again, we're talking about this behavior, but now he's going to illustrate it from within that Jewish worldview. He says, God destroyed those who did not believe. And then he talks about the angels. He abandoned though he he imprisoned those who abandoned their post. And then when he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah, he says he punished them for indulging their lust, because they indulged their lust. Are you starting to get a picture of who these false teachers are and what they do? When he's drawing these parallels, not believing abandoning their responsibility, their post, indulging in their lust and their licentiousness. Well, he's going to get even bigger in verse 8. He's going to get very explicit in verse 8. I'm going to spare you the details. But in verse 8, yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, that's an interesting translation, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. I'm just going to give it to you this way. Um, these people, um, uh, these people also who are living in their dreams, um, this is a masculine description. These are, in the way that I translate it, they're living their dream. Well, think about somebody who is disbelieving, who is abandoning their God-given responsibilities and indulging in lust. What are their dreams going to be? It's not just being a dreamer that's a problem. It's that they are living their dream. Their um, ecstatic desires. And then he uses three feminine words. This is what I'm talking about with, with explicit. They defile the flesh. They reject the lordship or leadership, which is feminine in Greek. And then they blaspheme the glorious ones, or they blaspheme glory. You need to understand what these guys were doing. They were using the women of the church for their own personal gratification. That's what he's describing here. He's describing a group of leaders who have gained such authority that the women of the church are being treated as their personal brothel. Now you go, whoa, how does that happen? Pay attention to the news. It happens in churches all the time. Leaders acquire authority and power, and authority and power are authoritative and powerful. And they can be used to control others and get them to do what you want them to do. And when there's no checks and balances on that control, it ultimately boils down. It eventually goes to the denigration of the fundamental institution of mankind. 
man and woman bound together in marriage. They do not, read in verse 9, right? Uh, now, he uses the illustration of the archangel Michael. This is, this is a, a quote from a, a passage called The Assumption of Moses. It's not in the Bible. Um, we actually do have the book that this comes from. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. And you say, What is that all about? Forget all the context, just the idea that if he was, when an angel was opposed to Satan, all he did was refer to the authority and power of Christ. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasonable animals, understand instinctively. They are consumed with meeting their animal desires. Be warned. Anytime a Christian leader tells you that whatever you as a Christian want to do, it is what God wants you to do. Generally, that's just an excuse for them to do whatever they want to do. Be warned when somebody says, well, the standards of the Bible, they, they have to be somewhat, you know, you can massage the rules. It's not that important. I have friends in prison because they played that game. He says, they do not understand that human beings are created in the image of God for the purposes of God and they have instead taken them for their own fodder. They blaspheme God by twisting what God has created for their own purposes. Now let me expand this a little bit beyond them. Is it possible to twist your marriage for your own purposes? Just go ahead and shake your head. Nod your head. Is it possible to abuse the responsibility entrusted in you as a parent or a teacher for your own purposes? Is it possible for pastors and teachers and volunteers in the church to abuse the relationship that they are entrusted with for their own purposes? Yes. Is it possible for children to abuse the relationship that they have with their parents to manipulate the situation? Every single parent with a toddler goes... The reality is that it is our human inclination to get everything that we can out of everything that we can. Left to our own devices, we will consume and destroy because we are selfish beings. You say, I don't like this. This is not a very positive sermon. The most positive thing in the scriptures is to know who you actually are just to understand how awesome God really is. When people walk around and go, well, you're not that bad of a sinner. Like, we need to be honest. We're all sinners. And you go, well, I'm a better sinner than that person. Like, I'm not as much, I mean, he's a sinner. I'm just, you know, a sin. We're all human beings. We're all corrupted by sin. 
And so we are all dependent upon our Master and Lord to be the control and ownership of us. They do not understand the value of people. They don't understand the value of the church. They don't understand the value of the relationships they've been given. And as a result, they blaspheme God in what they do with what God has entrusted them with. I told you, Judah does not pull punches. He says, and the only thing they understand is consumption and hunger and devouring and destroying. You say, why do we do that? Why do people like that? How does that happen? It's, it's just when, when you are not in control, and by in control I mean in Christ's control, when you are not in Christ's control, you will eventually turn to consumption. And we all have a little hint of this in our humanity, right? I mean, every single one of us has something that we, if we had it around all the time, we would just consume it. I mean, like I eat Oreos by the sleeve. You know, you can't, there, there's, you, you have to block. And that's a, it's a funny little goofy thing. But the reality is false teachers just consume everything. Then look at the examples he uses. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move through these pretty quickly. But look at the examples he uses in verse 11. He says, Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain. Remember a biblical example of somebody who did not want God to be in charge, wanted to consume things? Cain, who killed his brother Abel. Why did he kill Abel? He killed Abel because Abel managed to please God with his offering. Rather than coming up with an offering that might please God, Cain just killed the one who pleased God, thinking, well, then I'm the only one up, because there's only two of us. And then he says, uh, they follow the way of Cain. They've abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir. I'm not going to get into that, but it's in Numbers 22 and 23. And then he says, uh, they have, uh, they have uh, for the, and perished in Korah's rebellion. And that's in Numbers 16. Let me just give it to you real quick. Cain, jealousy moved him to destroy his brother, which then destroyed his life. Balaam was a prophet who was commanded not to prophesy against Israel, so he developed a loophole for the enemies of Israel to be able to corrupt Israel. They sent their women in amongst the, in amongst the tents and basically sent a bunch of uh, prostitutes to, to distract the Israelites. Let's just put it that way. So jealousy leads to destruction. Finding loopholes like Balaam did leads to destruction. Then the rebellion of Korah. Korah decided, not, not your Korah, but different Korah. Um, Korah decided that he was just as good a leader as Moses, and all Moses had done was lead the people of Israel into the wilderness. I mean, how could you possibly do worse than that? And so Korah led a rebellion, and God opened up the earth and swallowed him. And then there's this great moment where after that happens, Moses goes, anybody else? And it's, it's an amazing moment. And the most extraordinary thing is then his brother and sister rebel. You would think they would learn, but they were brothers and sisters. These three examples are all about people who are consumed with becoming their own authority, having independence from God's control. And the price of all that is always going to be it's always going to be the destruction of what God has given us. How do they destroy? Now I'm going to get back into all these examples next week. But just look at the examples in verse 12 and verse 13. These are 
hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast on you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by the wind, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. I'm going to get into all these, but here's what they have in common. They all look like they are doing one thing, but they're doing something else under the surface. Wandering stars, by the way, are the planets. And the reason they're described as wandering stars is you can't navigate by choosing Mars to be your navigation point, because I don't know if you know this, but Mars moves. The Greek word planet means wanderer. You have to use fixed stars in order to navigate. You can't navigate using the planets. These things, what they all have in common is they should be useful, and instead they're destructive. Underneath the surface of what appears to be good, there is nothing but destruction. You go, shouldn't we be a little more compassionate about people that are false teachers? And my answer to that question is, no. No. If somebody willfully disregards the scriptures, now I'm not talking about somebody being ignorant or foolish, but if somebody willfully disregards the scriptures, you don't go, well, you know, maybe God will one day convince them that it's wrong. We can still go ahead and listen to them, follow them. No. Jude says, don't, the false teachers, they're going to destroy you. They're going to eat you. They're going to consume you. They're going to abuse you. They're going to corrupt you. You say, well, purity is hard. Yeah, it is. And? If you decided to propose to your wife, I use this as an illustration for the guys, you loved her so, so much. And you know how much she loves glittery things. And so, she loves shiny, metal-y things. And so, you went out and you bought the absolute best stainless steel and cur uh, cubic zirconia engagement ring you could. And you told her, you looked at your wife and said, you know what? I love you so much that I got the finest silver platinum titanium. I don't, I don't know. My wife picked her own wedding ring out. Um, the, I, I, bought, I, I got this. Isn't this? The, this is how much you mean to me. You know? And you lied. And it was empty. And it was superficial. Would she tolerate that garbage? But false teachers come to us with the corrupted and broken and destroying, the abusing and the breaking, and they go, this is what God has for you. Isn't it beautiful? And unfortunately, a lot of people just go, yeah, it is. The Apostle Paul says, or the Apostle, uh, well, not the Apostle, Pastor Judah says, you better watch because they are going to consume you. They're going to destroy you. You should have a zero tolerance policy for them. Say, what do I do with this in my life? Just wake up. 
when someone comes and tells you something, be willing to test it against the Scriptures. Be willing to test it against the witness of Scripture and people who are committed to Scripture. You, false teachers corrupt and destroy. We have to be alert, aware, and moving against them. Because the world that Judah lived in is the world we live in. There are still people out there saying all the right things for all the wrong purposes. Building something that looks perfect and beautiful, but is really just empty and waiting to destroy you. And the temptation is strong. Next week, I'm going to talk a little bit. We're going to we spend a little bit more time on some specific situations when he talks about all of the examples. But this week, I just want to remind you to be aware of how seriously God takes false teachers. And that you should take them that seriously too. Let's pray. Father, you love us more than we could ever understand. And you guide us and teach us and lead us in ways that really are more than we deserve. And who you are deserves more of who we are. Help us not to sit on autopilot just to passively absorb but Lord to be active to be aware to be deepening our roots in your word so that we can see false teachers for who they are before the destruction that they do we pray all of